Welcome everyone, welcome, welcome to you all, each and every person. So uh, tonight's talk on, is on the body and movement. And again, we'll be marching through the Satipatthana Sutta to decipher uh, the messages that are trying to be conveyed within the sutta about the body and movement. <clears throat> but before I jump right in, I'd like to read a little passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, uh, because I think it's a, it's a poignant message uh, where the Buddha seems almost to lament uh, to Sariputra. Uh, he says, um, whether I teach the Dharma in brief or at length or both, those who understand it are hard to find. And he's lamenting. I mean, uh, I know that that's a common perception among teachers is you know, that there are just few people who really want to hear this. And yet the message is so important to humanity at large. And so Sariputra replies, he says, uh, then, O blessed one, this is the time for you to teach the Dharma, both in brief and at length. There will be those who will understand. And I think then Sariputra was trying to encourage him. You know, there are people out there that want to hear. And uh, that sort of uh, brings the Buddha, I think, out of the slump he might have been in. Well, he says, uh, well then, Sariputra, thus, shall be training, thus training shall be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, there shall be no conceited imagining of I and mine, and no such bias. Nor should there be such conceited imaginings or bias of mine with regard to any external objects. We shall thus abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. And so he says, okay, let's get back to it. He's, you know, we're back in the body. Now, as we enter the body, let us teach and liberate people from the conceit of, of their imagery in regard to their body, their sense of possessiveness and ownership in regard to their body and the world at large. In other words, to step out of self-deception. And then he gets going again, and he's backward. And I think the message uh, that I want to transfer from this sutta to you is the doability of the Dharma, that how accessible it is with your willingness, with your uh, uh, commitment and sincerity. This is not uh, a, a, an obscure, um, some obscure and uh, esoteric teaching. This is available. This is uh, transferable to your life. And liberation is possible. And not only possible, but assured within your sincerity. And so when we start talking through this sutta, uh, don't think of these exercises or these techniques that are offered or this methodology as being remote for monks, but immediate for us. If we can translate them and put them in terms and in touch with the details of our life, then they should translate into stepping out of self-deception and 
to liberation, if that's what our heart's deepest yearning is intended, is intending. So I just want to pick us all up here and after uh, 10 or more of these talks that we've done and not let ourselves languish in self-doubt and come to these meetings with some sense of procrastination and half-heartedness, but to really infuse our life once more with some intentionality and to know that that intentionality has a completion within the Dharma, uh, if we are willing to attend to it. Now, you know, in the break I gave just a small exercise. I just suggested that we bring as much consciousness to bear upon the break time as we did upon the sitting time. And I'm just wondering, and this is uh, not a question for response, but just a question for us to hold whether we were able to do that or not, even for a simple five-minute interlude before the Dharma talk. And what does it take then? What's, what's working against us? Why is it so difficult to do? And within this sutta, this sutta of movement, this sutta of uh, this body in movement, we shall talk about that, the difficulty of, of losing awareness or seeming to lose awareness, what happens there in movement? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult when we have our agenda, which is really the difficulty, when we place our own agenda upon life and then work it out according to what our needs are in trying to ascertain and to grasp and those needs? Uh, why is it that everything else, our spiritual journey, our spiritual practice recedes in somewhat distant memory when that occurs. So we should look at that. So I'll start off and read uh, the next part of the sutta, and then we'll do some commentary on that part that I just read. So the Buddha says, furthermore, when walking, the monk understands that he or she is walking. When standing, she discerns that she is standing. When sitting, he or she is mindful that he or she is sitting. When lying down, he discerns that he is lying down. Or, however her body is disposed, that is how she discerns it. Now, that's, this is a very important transition between the sitting, which we have talked about up until this point, the sitting still, the contemplation, the focusing in on the breath and the body, etc., and the imaging of the body. And now we're in motion. Now we're in movement. And uh, three or four things about this particular passage and how important it is. The first thing is that it establishes meditation in action. So that we should now break our def definition of meditation as something that we're sitting still doing in our remote and solitude, to uh, movement, in action, in movement. And when we break that definition, uh, we break out of a particular cage or contained way that we have perceived meditation to be. Because now, it's not about, and this is the second point that I think is so important, 
It's not about keeping the container of quiet and stillness. It's not about holding ourselves in some kind of rarefied circumstance that we feel we need to sit. It's about something else, isn't it? It's about everything else that happens in movement. And so we can no longer hold the picture of meditation as being something that I need to get away from everyone else from. And in solitude with everything quiet and uh, out in the forest, some remote area, now I can sit and now I can be quiet. Now I can, now is the time for me to sit. Or waiting till 11 o'clock at night until everybody is in bed and oh, now I can sit. Now it may be helpful to wait until 11 o'clock at night just so that you have some undisturbed time. But for you to think that that undisturbed time is the definition of meditation is really wrong view. You see, now this is how important this is. And I'll tell you that in this tradition, walking meditation is offered, but it's often seen as a secondary practice, isn't it? I mean, when you really had it together, you'd sit. But in order to get the body so that it moves a little bit, in between the sitting, we'll offer you some walking meditation so that you can go back and not have your body hurt quite as much while you, when you sit again. Well, that's not what this sutta is saying to me. This sutta is saying that we are now in movement in meditation, which means, as we did in the break, that there is abiding bodily awareness within movement. And some people uh, I know complain, especially when uh, people who are new to meditation, they think, well, you know, meditation is too passive. It's uh, too disengaged. It just, it means sort of being uh, isolated uh, from everyone and uh, sitting alone and all of that. And again, this sutta breaks that concept apart. It's not disengaged. It's fully engaged because movement doesn't mean isolation. In fact, it means interaction, which we will see in the next section. It very explicitly talks about interaction. And it's not passive. It's not just, you know, especially people who have a life of social engagement, uh, somewhat uh, uh, disparage or can disparage meditation because they think it's it's not living up to the fulfilled promise of engaged activity. Uh, but th such a person really doesn't understand uh, what is learned in non-movement, what is the value of not doing, what one begins to perceive true social engagement is about, and how most of us who are socially engaged without a, a meditation practice often do that social engagement from anger and from really a, 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 a feeling of isolation and separation and, and uh, enemy. It's a, there's an enemies list out there. And it's kind of a self-righteousness. Which, if you perceive, could somebody turn off their phones. I mean, I just, thank you. So if you could perceive uh, that 
social interaction, social activity, social engagement, uh, you don't lose the spirit of that. You, what you lose is the perception of, of it being about righteous indignation. Rather, it's about using your action primarily to heal in unity the tragedies that some action causes. But your action, when it's invested within that particular uh, social problem, doesn't, further, cre doesn't create further divisions within it. And so there's a different way that we get engaged, a different way that we get involved. It is not that we don't get involved at all. And so that's a, that's a very important point, I think, for people who carry the misunderstanding of meditation as being passive. I don't know very many passive Buddhists. They're very attuned to the social conditions around them and act very much in every way to work towards uh, solving those conditions. And uh, as I mentioned earlier on, the other thing that the Buddha is pointing out is that movement is not a secondary form. That movement is not somehow secondary to a quiet and still sitting meditation. Much of our belief, much of our understanding of quiet, solitude, sitting is really because this tradition, more than any other tradition, focuses in on the accumulation and building of samadhi. And samadhi is built most easily within a non-distracted, isolated setting. But that's not what this sutta is about. This sutta isn't about establishing unparalleled concentration, unbroken concentration. It's about wisdom. And wisdom does not deny or avoid difficulty. In fact, I was uh, teaching at the Forest Refuge a few years ago, two or three years ago. One of the women uh, there had lung cancer uh, and was in later stages of lung cancer and would sometimes during the middle of the sit start coughing uncontrollably. And the forest refuge is a very refined setting, very quiet. It's a very, it's a samadhi, it's a samadhi building, very strong emphasis on concentration and the environment very conducive to that. But I wasn't there teaching that, I was there teaching wisdom. And so when, as, as this woman started to cough, she very politely got up and started to leave. And I left my sit sitting as well and went out and uh, followed her out into the hall. And I said to her, you know, um, you're welcome to go if you're more comfortable in going, but don't go because you think you're disturbing us. Because we're not here to be undisturbed. And so, please, you're welcome back into the hall and you're welcome to cough as much as you need to without any sense of apology at all. And I really meant it. And if you look at how we hold our meditations as being uh, so, it's such a, uh, in, in such a um, contrived container, 
that any sense of disturbance is an annoyance to our meditation. Rather than seeing the disturbance as something the mind is doing within meditation, we blame the disturbance for a disruption of our meditation. That's crazy making. That's not using the principles. The principles, remember we spent many weeks talking about the principles before we even entered this sutta. Using the principles to guide our meditation. The principles say, are you suffering? If somebody is coughing and you're disturbed, you are suffering. And therefore, the alleviation of that is to drop the opposition of it, to drop the argument that this person shouldn't be in the hall coughing while you're trying to sit. If you drop that image, you can live very comfortably with the fact that somebody is moving or adjusting their posture or coughing or whatever within the arrangement of the sitting, you see? But if you think that the sitting is about the ability to stare endlessly at one particular sensation and then a coughing causes you to be distracted from that intense glare, well then it is a disruption of your meditation. And I don't think we realize sufficiently how alluring this sense of concentration is because we just keep emphasizing and emphasizing as generation upon generation of Buddhists move through the cycle. What's fine when you're a monastic, you know, it isn't even fine when you're a monastic, but many monastics pursue that because they have the refined environment in order to pursue that, but our lives don't allow that. Our lives are lives of movement. Now, is liberation lost? Is the Buddha right in lamenting about few people, you know, because we're all lay people here, nobody will get it? I don't think so. No, in fact, I know not. Not if we use the teaching in accordance, in alignment with the suffering to the end of suffering, or whatever our continuum might be. And we went through several of them. And so we, the Buddha takes us right out of sitting meditation and offers us an alternative posture for uh, meditation. Standing, sitting, lying down. He doesn't leave anything out, walking. And it's almost as if he's tr encouraging us to get off the table, off the zafu. And it's almost as if he's saying, that practice that is not fully embraced in movement is like practicing an, athlete, an athletic uh, sport, a sport like basketball, let's say, where you just learn to dribble and shoot, but you never learn to play with your teammates. And sitting is dribbling and shooting. But the point is, is to play with your teammates to get out there and interact in full aliveness form through the heart's interconnectedness and find your liberation within that. So this is not a disheartening sutta to the layperson, I feel. It's an encouragement to the layperson. But we have to do it, and that's where we might find it difficult. Now, I was up at uh, Mount Baker 
I think last weekend. And we were doing, we we're just taking hikes in Mount Baker, so we were up there hiking. And uh, I was just playing around with walking meditation because I think that there's samadhi walking meditation, right? That's where you lifting, moving, placing, shifting, lifting, moving, placing. And every, and your focus is on the refined sensations in your feet. And uh, I certainly have spent a lot of time doing that. But I wanted to know where would the awareness go? So this was my question when I was hiking. When I wasn't fo forcing it anywhere and when I wasn't uh, confiscating my attention in, the, uh, in my mind so that I was just thinking. So I just uh, welcomed stillness. And then I wanted to see where the awareness, where was the center of awareness? And believe it or not, it, it transcended, it descended to about the middle area of my body. Which, when the Buddha was asking, was once asked where the seat of attention was, he gave that as kind of a... It's also, in Qigong and Tai Chi, I think, the, the, um, the area that is um, often spoken about, the Tantiem, I think it's called, or something like that. But it was very much in this area and was fully embodied and, but wasn't limited to body, it, would, it, was, it was extended beyond body, which I'll talk about in just a minute. And it was just fun, you know, because nothing was disturbed, sights, sounds, smells, and tastes were all coming in, and the delight and appreciation for the body and movement and seeing, and yet the awareness wasn't lost in the thoughts about things. It was settled very easily and undisturbed in a kind of contented form in the middle. So I, I want to encourage that kind of adventure in your own discovery of body awareness and movement. We don't have to keep it so formal as to what the feet are doing in its particular, what's the big toe feeling in relationship to, you know, it's, this could be spread out a little more. It could be made into a dance. It could be made into a complete formless movement. It can be made into a bathing uh, experience or whatever we might be doing at the time and so I just think that encouraging a little more experimentation and investigation in this movement of the body could be very helpful if we think that walking meditation is only the uh, sensations in our feet what happens in the rushing hours of our lives when we can't even and our shoes are on and we're, you know, we're lost in the noise of the commotion of living and finding our feet is the, probably the last thing we can do, but we do have a sense of body in all of that. And to be able to move with some degree of grace through the day is a beautiful, um, encouragement of the form in interaction and within action. <clears throat> Dancing, beautiful opportunity of it. So let's talk a little bit about why do we and how do we lose our way uh, so quickly when we start moving. When we got up from the sitting, what happens? 
what happens in that, why is it kind of click all click back in? You know, well that's fine, I was sitting and I was in a band, so I was sort of secondarily important to all the things that were happening uh, in the experience of the meditation, but as soon as I got back up, I was primary again, wasn't I? And where I was moving was primary, and the cause and reasons for moving was primary. So the sense of I came forward, and with the sense of I coming forward, the I, the sense of self's agenda comes with it, doesn't it? And suddenly, you know, well, I, excuse me, I'm trying to get back there to get a little homework sheet, and I have to wait through 10 people, so how, how can I plot my course around these 10 people, pick up one? Well, I'll just ask the person up in the front of the line to get two instead of one, so I don't have to wait, on and on. And there's this kind of manipulation of circumstances, and because suddenly it's not, we're no longer passive recipients of the experience, we're actively controlling the experience of our life. And when that sense of active controller comes, extends outward, this, the sense of being meditative, or because meditation is receiving the experience of life, Meditation, we're not actively controlling the experiences of life we're receiving. So this sense, somewhere in the, we've been replaced from a, a passive receiving the experience of life in which the sense of self is secondary to one in which we're now fully engaged within the details of life in which we are become active and primary. And somewhere in that seating arrangement, rearrangement, I lose awareness. Now why would I lose awareness? Because awareness is, becomes secondarily important to what you want in the moment that you're trying to procure whatever it is. So awareness is still there, it's just secondarily important. And when something is secondarily important and as unobtrusive as awareness is, it isn't even observed, it isn't even connected with. Now, it's not that it's lost, it's that we're lost. And whether one wants to come back, it's like, how do I give my, how do I make this work? You make it work by relaxing your hands. You aren't going to make it work on your terms. You're going to make it work on its terms by relaxing the tension you have with it. By all of the brow beating and the, you know, all of that kind of, that's immaturity, really. You make it work by seeing how it works and then bringing it forward. Because when you realize that it's never missing, that you are missing from it, then we figure out how to diminish our sense of control within what we're doing and we will find uh, that springing forth once more. Now when I was hiking, uh, one thing that was real clear was as long as I was, if I was tired and I had an agenda for the hike to end or if I was looking at my watch to see how long I had hiked and how much more I had to hike or I'd ask a fellow hiker who was coming the other way how much further it is to the lake well, there wasn't any awareness nor enjoyment in the process of hiking. As soon as we have a product associated with our movement, as soon as we have 
some representation of self where we are going, then the mind looks forward to the procurement of that product. And movement becomes quantifiable. That is, when I get what I intending, then the movement is satisfied. Right? So it's not movement for itself in the poem. It's not existence for its own existence. It's existence in order to be productive, to be useful, to be whatever it is that we're that motivates our movement. And so as soon as we reach, we're not interested in the reaching. Why would you be interested in the reaching? The reaching is for the cup to get the water to, you see, now, right? Now I can take this moment in. What about all this moment? 90x percent of our time is spent in getting to what it is that we want. So is 90% of our time a wasted time? And only that 10 or fewer percent of time when we actually get the goal, the product, then it's not wasted anymore. How are we going to bring this thing back, you see? How are we going to recover ourselves? We're all recovering ourselves. Our recovering our life. We're not recovering ourselves. We're uncovering ourselves to recover life. And so we, you begin to see the value of life lived before it's satisfied, mentally satisfied, because the movement is for some satisfaction. And so if you're just interested in the satisfaction, then the movement's a waste of time. But if you can hold the satisfaction as part of the completion of the moment, it's just a moment in which there one aspect of it is an emotion or an attitude of unsatisfactoriness. It's not an unsatisfactory moment. Do you see? It's a moment that contains some, some, some unsatisfactoriness. I can live with that. And now I'm not rushing to cover up that unsatisfactoriness with, with what it is that I'm trying to get from life that will assuage that discomfort. You have to do this thing. You know, this isn't theoretical. Well, it's theoretical. You can take it home and think, that sounded good. I heard it better on other talks. But, <laughs> but then you don't practice it. And what we're going to be learning, if you stay with this thing, and I'm running out of time already, <laughs> is that unless you practice it, it all is a wash. That it's the movement itself that is the deciding link between the insight and the integration of wisdom. You can sit on your seat forever and have tremendous insights into voidness and everything, but if it, you get back up and you, the sense of you is in full flowering, those will just become remote memories. Unless you say, okay, you know, even though there is this sense of self, I know, because I've experienced, I saw the sense of emptiness. Now, what does that mean? What is, how does that translate in terms of movement, in terms of what I want for life, in terms of what life is, and in terms of me within it? Because this whole thing gets kind of shaky here when you start translating what you've seen into the practicalities of being.
And it should be. That's if we want this thing. And the beauty of allowing movement to arise more spontaneously within the situation rather than to try to effectively work towards the obtaining a goal, which is looking into the future for satisfaction rather than the here and now, is that the here and now is the only place that you can be truly satisfied. And serendipity happens within the here and now. That's I don't think we realize how the wonders and majesty of life, the magic quality of life, which is so enticing to the heart and such a makes life so wondrous. You know, you're thinking of someone, you turn the corner and there they are. How did they get there? Coincidence. Mm. That's a way of that's just a word. <laughs> when we don't know how it got there, we say coincidence. Chance, we say. Just means we don't know, but it start the wonders of that mag, ma, uh, magic starts happening in front of your eyes. But when you're only set with a goal, you don't care that you were thinking of Joe and Joe's there around the corner, because Joe isn't what you wanted anyway. You wanted to get to your car, and Joe was just. <laughs> and you get the job done. Don't worry about that. The job gets done. Say, oh, if I just focus in on the moment, what about the, the job gets done? Don't worry. So let's look at action. An embodiment. What? Okay. Um, wise action. Okay, um, now we'll be sitting and we'll have an insight. Maybe we'll see something about us. Some might be a psychological insight, could be a depth of realization, it could be a lot of different things. But just get a sense of something in yourself. Maybe that you're afraid of something or that there's a shadow part of you that is coming up or you're prejudiced or opinionated or something and you think, okay, I've seen that now. Uh, and then we just kind of let it go and never bother it again. It's like seeing it is somehow supposed to cure itself. No, not at all. You, you have to bring that component into an inquiry, into a, an investigation and say, okay, so I saw this, say, mixed racial couple together and I felt, God, what were they doing? You know, felt the prejudice. Okay, I can't, I can't rest with that. I have to see what that's about. There's something in me that keeps translating, whatever it might be, into some form of reactivity. And the reactivity is a key. And you don't rest with it, you just don't let it become a memory. You, you keep bringing it up. You start looking for that reactivity wherever you find it and where you're holding, the pain you're holding within that reactivity as well. So there's a way that we don't allow the insight, whatever we saw in the moment of fleeting moment of our meditation, to fall by the wayside. But we really bring it up, we call it forth, and we start working with the thing as an active ingredient of our life. 
And we start noticing, oh, I see that, you know, being raised in the 50s, there's this little irritation when I see mixed racial couples or whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. And she says, okay, so now what am I going to do? So you could have a whole game plan for beginning to expose yourself to that form of prejudice because prejudice doesn't go away. We don't like it, nobody likes it, but it doesn't go away just by not wanting it to be there. It has to be explored. And most people are afraid to explore it because to explore it means that they're racist in this particular case. And nobody wants to be labeled racist, so we'll suppress the fact that we have those reactivities, pretend that everything is fine, and let ourselves harbor that racism because in that way we can pretend that we're free of prejudice. doesn't work. If you're honest with yourself, you see that and you start flushing it out. And looking at yourself, wherever it is that you hold some bias for yourself, against yourself, and any sense of image you have of yourself is a bias against yourself. Did you hear that? Any image you have of yourself is a limitation in a bias of yourself. I don't care how good or poor the image is. It is a limitation and will create havoc for you in the long run. And so you start looking for to flush that out. Oh, I see. I'm, I'm arrogant with certain type of person. What is that arrogance about? And that inquiry, that willingness to look inside, to see the disposition of when arrogance arises in certain situations and to see where your pain is, because when there is arrogance, there's the pain of one's own self-diminishment, which is why arrogance is an overcompensation. I need to look at that. I need to get that pain out. I need to flush it out. And all of this is easily done in movement. It's done through movement. When we're in movement, we can, we can bring this out. When you're sitting there, you don't have the circumstances in order to see the reactivity, to get the experience, and to, to understand and investigate the experiences that's arising. But in activity, when you're in the middle of arrogance, being arrogant with somebody, you're feeling it in yourself, you go, whoa. Right there, in movement, in interaction, you're not going to let the movement move you beyond the understanding and investigation of that moment. You're not going to skip over it or pretend it's not there, but you're going to allow, we're going to allow that movement to show us our ignorance, to show us our arrogance. And the body, the body has long assumed the posture of escapism because that's what we have used the body for. And so when we feel something disparaging in ourselves, we'll slink off, we'll go here, we'll go left, we'll turn around, we'll run away, we'll do anything so that we don't have to confront that level of disturbance within us. So this is where wise action, this is where the, the body is the representation of breaking the important link, the connection between the insight and the remediation, the remedy, uh, and the freedom from the disturbance through the body. 
because the body carries the messages of our fear, of our avoidance. It has assumed the logic of our hysteria, of our neurosis. How we carry our bodies, our, our slumpiness, our, our body posture. And so in movement, as we're speaking, as we're moving through the world, as we're shaking hands and looking people in the eye, as we're engaged in action, we will have psychological reactivity to what we're doing. And the body will assume that's the truth of that psychological disadvantage, which usually it is, feeling of unworthiness, and start creeping away and so on. And what we're called to do is to enlighten the body in that moment, keep it steady, let the cells take on a new representation, a new relationship to itself, to its understanding. Hi, how are you? Fine, I'm just fine. How are you doing? Steady eyes, firm posture, no slumping, no self-disregard. And we see that there's, there's only one mechanism for this to work, and it's through the body, through the movement. Not sitting. You're not, you could sit for 20, and I've known people that have focus so much on the sitting meditation that they miss the journey of liberation. They get hooked into the thought of sitting meditation as being the liberating component. It's not. It forms really good samadhi. It will show you have a lot, you have lots of insights, but it has a limitation. Understanding is better in movement than in passivity and in, uh, in body stillness. More understanding will come in the movement. And this is what the Buddha is saying, it seems to me, when I read between the lines, when I get lost in just the dry interpretation of what he says, you know, it doesn't, but for me, it means, come on out. Let's live this thing. Let's live it. And every one of you, by the nature of the fact that we are interacting all the time, that means our mind is always conjuring up an image or reactivity or a liking or a dis there it is right in front of us all the time and what we're thinking about God I, I gotta go home and sit <laughs> the action integrates an insight someone once said uh, do what you know is, the, is if there's a simple phrase for liberation, it's do what you know. And each of us have an intuitive sense in ourselves that we know where we're disadvantaged. We know what we need, where we need to learn. We know where we need to go. We just won't allow ourselves to do that or we get caught up in someone else's image or some other teacher's pointing and don't follow that sense of inward guidance that we have to do what we know to do for ourselves. You know where your pain is. You don't need my talks to point to your pain. You know where your pains are. Now are we going to go there?
So I think I'm going to skip over what I, I have a whole, and I'm going to go to a, a component part of uh, the sutta where he says, um, fully, uh, fully alert and fully attentive, fully, F-U-L-L-Y, fully, fully attentive, right? It's like when we do walking meditation, we kind of are there, right? So I'm kind of there. And therefore the mind has per, some percentage of that fully, right? It's sort of, it's a sort of showing up for you. Maybe it's 50-50, maybe we can get really good and only be there 10% while our mind kind of entertains us the other 90%. Well, what's fully look like? What's fully look like? I think that's an important word for us, fully. Now, um, this is an important component. In meditation, in spiritual journey, in Buddhism, they talk about sati, S-A-T-I, which is mindfulness, which is awareness. Sampajana, sati sampajana. And if you read the text in uh, Pali, you would see every time there's a sati, you would see a sampajana, which is awareness and clear comprehension. Clear comprehension, fully comprehending the situation, fully available clear comprehension so that there is um, that the purpose and intention of what you're doing the motivation of what you're doing the context out of what of what and why and how you're doing it are also known to you and the context of the situation the relationship who you're meeting much of the wisdom of Buddha is an interactive wisdom. Like he'll say, well, don't just tell somebody what is true. D get a sense of what they can hear before you say what is true and then tell them what they can hear. Don't tell them what, what, they, what they are disposed of being able to hear. How much truth can they hear from you? Is it the right time to say to that person what you know they need to hear? And what is it that makes you so sure that you <laughs> need to say it anyway? And what do you think you know? And so all of that is the contextual, the contextual situation. You see, when you, so it, interrelationship, the whole inter, inter, interdependency of other f expressions of life gets pulled into this teaching. Full awareness, fully aware, not just Right? So I'm so self-contained that I don't have any, I don't even know you're there. I'm so, something wrong there. This is an interactive practice. We reach beyond ourselves. If it's just about ourselves, how would we ever get to interconnectedness? We have to move this thing beyond. And so the, for the last point, I just want to encourage walking meditation. In walking meditation, we say walk with awareness. Okay, so you're walking with awareness. So you're always the one that's forcing the awareness on the situation. So try walking within awareness. So that the context of the awareness is 
around you and it holds, it, it's not forced by your control. It's there regardless of whether you're controlling it or not. And you get a sense that this thing pre-exists our efforts to establish it. Right? Just as we're standing here now, just notice that awareness is also outside your body and sees your body so that awareness is having the experience of you. Instead of you having the experience of awareness. You get a feeling of that. You see? So full awareness, fully aware, fully aware, is not awareness derived from our own sense of control. It's seeing what pre-exists our control. And much more will be said about that in future talks. Thank you all. Maybe we can just sit for a minute or two. So as you, as you sit, you see, full awareness. <laughs> See, when awareness pre-exists you, then what is coming from you is not so... Uh, it's, it's secondary, really. I'm not feeling very good. Well, that's the feeling of not feeling very good. That's what awareness is experienced. The feeling, this, the emotion or the attitude of not feeling very good or feeling fulfilled. I'm not feeling fulfilled. I need, but that's very different than us assuming that that's the truth of the moment. Just an experience within the moment. Not discontentedness. can experience just discontentedness, just an experience, like the experience of the wind. Okay, if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to. Yes, dear, what, you, what have you got? You underlined the idea of if we create an image of ourselves, It's a limitation. It's a limitation on you. Any image that you conceive for yourself is a limitation on yourself. Because you're not that. I mean, that doesn't sum you up, does it? <clears throat> it's often what we'd like to think about ourselves. It's often what we'd like to believe about ourselves. But when any time you've sort of... Uh, contracted around a particular idea of yourself, you can bet, you can be assured that the world's going to prove that wrong. You can, be, that's what it's, that's what all this is about really, is proving you wrong. <laughs> it's really what it's about. 
And so we were proved wrong and wrong again. And we just think it's circumstantial. You know, I didn't try hard enough. And, <laughs> you know, I've got to try harder to beat that person. And then I can have the image that, you know, whatever. It does, but it, there's always a limitation on an image. So the question would be, why have an image? Why do we need an image, right? I mean, that's, that's a question I think that's a, an important one. What does an image give us? And this is, I'm not going to answer this because I think it's fruit, beautiful, a, a open, ripe field for inquiry. Why do I want an image? What does it, how do, what does it satisfy me to have an image of myself? And can I feel the limitation when, you have to be careful because the limitation, when there's a limitation on your image, again, we blame the circumstances for the limitation. So you can't, you have to be, you have to be um, sophisticated enough not to do that. But then you begin to feel very quickly the limitation of an image uh, if you don't do that. And you be also see why you do it, you know. You know, it sets me apart. It establishes me in appearance to other appearances. So now I have my appearance is different. See, it's all around appearance. How I look in someone else's eyes or my own. Well, what if I just, what if that weren't the way I went around? I mean, what if appearances weren't so important to me? We're in a good area of the country because it's not an area of the country that emphasizes appearance so much. You know, you go to the symphony and somebody next to you is wearing blue jeans and the other guy's wearing a tuxedo, all right? That's Seattle. And, I, and so there, there's a de-emphasis on appearance. But let's just take it a little further because that itself can be an image. What does it look like? See, when, when, wh why do we establish an argument? We establish an argument to, to form and to control our image. Well, if I didn't have an image, then there wouldn't be any argument, would there? So that would satisfy a lot of problems right there. So to just work with these things. Go latch on wherever you can. Right? And then just start embodying it and moving it forward in yourself. Anyone else? Nobody has a question? Okay. Yeah. Right. What if it's really charged? Well, some, some images are really charged, and you have to go very slowly and patiently with those, okay? Uh, and uh, if, um, if there's, you know, post-traumatic stress, then you you have to you have to set your sights. Don't 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 say you know I've had post just don't use it as an excuse never to look and never to see and this is the reason I'm the way I am, right? If I had that occurred in me, I would I would say okay my intention is I'm going to go through this thing I don't care how long it takes but I'm not going to die with this. And so let me just. In, in bite-sized pieces, manageable forms, with therapy and all the other tools I need, 
I'm going to keep walking towards this. I'm not going to rest upon my reactivity and claim the world to be such and such because I'm reacting. I'm just going to keep walking it forward. And as you walk forward, the image shifts and changes and moves. And so it's not as if it stays stuck in the same way by not looking at it, which it will stay stuck. So, and again, um, I, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of uh, compassion for people who have had those kind of childhood experiences uh, and who are just maybe just discovering them in their adulthood. But when, when we see a shadowed area, you know, gently, gently moving into those things so that we start developing conscious awareness within that rather than backing away from it, shutting the door, and never wanting to see it again. Just very gently start moving into the dark, making the unconscious conscious. Others? Anyone else? There was another hand up that I... Yes, Joyce. Yes. And um, so uh, at times I've experienced having faith in just being in the moment and seeing that thing do happen. Yes. But it's hard to, it's hard to really conceptualize that that could actually. Okay, so that's a very important point. And she says, you know, to, the need to do, to be productive, to check off your list uh, is so strong, isn't it? It, well, it's strong. If you look at it evolutionarily, the ability to abstract our thoughts protected us as a species. Okay, if I go out today, there may be a lion out there. I better take a spear with me, a few other guys to go, you know, so that we can bring this hunt, you know, whatever. But I had to think all that up and, you know, then. So that's in our system. That's the way the mind thinks. The mind thinks to protect itself, to pr be productive, and to procure. That's, that's what its job is, evolutionarily. But spiritually, we have, we have uh, surrendered ourselves to the mind's interpretation of events from it futurizing itself like that. And the enormous uh, emphasis on productivity and has created a tension and a stress in this society that is just beyond belief, really. It can't be maintained, can't be sustained. So my question is, do we have to give up being useful when we give up the stress that's associated with what we, the productivity that we're doing? So I would test the theory. I would try it. You, Keep a list so you don't have to keep thinking about what the next thing is while you're doing the one thing you're doing. You're thinking about the next thing. See if you can't work more effectively by not letting the next thing move into your frame of reference while you're doing this thing. But when this thing is finished, you move on to the next thing. I mean, when I was a hospice, uh, when I was in hospice, they kept increasing the productivity uh, rates of 
<coughs> of our job. So we started off seeing three, then we have to see four, then we have to see five patients a day. So I said, okay, let me just see, you know, whether that really disturbs the relationship I can have with each patient, because I thought it would. But when I actually, when I actually brought my full attention to bear during those visits, the visits may have been shorter in duration, but the relationship was not diminished. Uh, and I might have said fewer things or not had quite the luxuriousness of banter. But as long as I wasn't thinking ahead of what I needed to do next, I could be totally present with that person. And then also there was a kind of way that I would organize those visits so that I could get four or five visits done in that day when I hadn't been able to in the previous way. So there's a way that the system organizes itself, and we will organize it, that we don't have to lose uh, what's important to us on the job, even as we are asked to do more in the job. Now, at some point, of course, there's a breaking point when the relationship does suffer. And at that point, you have to ask yourself whether the job is worth doing, given what you have to give up by doing it. But for the most part, it's not that way. At least I didn't find it to be. Okay, all. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.